0: Welcome to the latest episode of The Third Wheel, a podcast from Herbert Smith Freehills on all things ESG. I'm Mel Debenham, a partner in our Perth office, and I practice in environment planning, heritage, native title and um, anything related to those things. It is so nice to be back on the pod after a couple of episodes in the trusty hands of my colleague and co-host Tim Stutt, um, a partner in our Sydney office and extraordinaire when it comes to ESG from a corporate governance perspective, amongst many other things. Hello, Tim. How are you?
1: Hi, Mel. It's exciting to be back together again.
0: (laughs) Well, it certainly is, and quite a lot has happened since we last spoke. Um, Today, we're going to be looking at the ESG climate in Australia following the federal election, and it was certainly one for the history books, um, the dust has settled a little, but not only do we have a a change in government, so now a Labor government, but the biggest crossbench in Australia since World War II. Um, There were geopolitical tensions leading up to the election, um, not to mention cost of living pressures, natural disasters, fires, floods, mass plagues. Um, I haven't even got to COVID-19, um, but yeah, with a, a pandemic in the mix as well. Um, Before we get too deep into today's topic, I'd like to welcome our third will guest, Catherine Pacey. Catherine is based in our Brisbane office and she's one of my fellow partners in the National Environment Planning and Communities Practice. Um, So we have the E, the S and the G very well covered today. Welcome, Catherine.
2: Thanks, Mel. Thanks, Tim. Great to be here.
0: Catherine, I know you live and breathe environmental law, a little bit the same as me, um, but you advise government, private sector um, on a whole raft of issues and projects, including compliance, regulatory issues, um, as well as litigation. So I'm really looking forward to um, your observations on the first question that we always ask our guests. And Um, That is, why is ESG important and what does it mean to you? ESG,
2: to me, embodies doing business responsibly and having that vital trust of your stakeholders. So, it is conducting your business in a way that puts your stakeholders, that might be your shareholders, customers, employees, suppliers, front and centre of your purpose and your decision making, and then making sure you're reporting on your business in an open and really transparent way.
1: I think that was one of our most concise answers yet, <laughs> Catherine. So well done on <laughs> well done on that front. Turning to the election results and um the, the flow on from that, which is really uh the focus that for today's session and what we're going to be digging into. Um it was quite the result. Uh, As Mel mentioned, Labor achieved a primary vote which was lower than at the last election, which listeners will remember prompted um, Bill Shorten to resign. In Queensland, Labor didn't win a seat from the coalition, with the pressure actually coming from the Greens. But it was a different story in Western Australia, with the Liberals taking pretty major hits on their primary vote, 9%, all bar one electorate voting for Labour. This follows the landslide state election result in 2021 and the um, the high approval rating that Premier Mark McGowan has. And then we also had the success of the TEALs, the progressive future-focused independent candidates, largely running on a platform of climate action. And um, as Mel mentioned, the historic crossbench with some 15 people. This really is the first time that climate change has impacted on the election result. Catherine, Mel, is it all smooth sailing from here on out on climate change and environmental protection? What should we be expecting?
0: Uh, Look, the election result in that regard, I think, was really interesting. Um, and, And Catherine and I had sort of reflected on this at times. But In the lead up to the election, there was very little um, by way of environmentally focused policy. Um, Obviously, each party had their um, emissions reduction targets and Labor was more ambitious um, compared to the Liberals. and, And of course, the Greens more ambitious again, but otherwise, it really was a vacuum. Um, And much to my surprise, that changed in the dying days of the campaign, and I I assume some confidence was growing within within the Labor team, where where they came forward and reinforced their intention to be strong on the environment, and and both in terms of climate, but also sort of broader protection issues, Um, Including committing to full implementation of recommendations from the EPBC Act review and establishment of a national EPA, and I, I was I was a little surprised by that be, because we've always seen environmental issues and climate as being sort of a election killer kind of uh, issues, um, and I've I've seen that intention flow through in the first weeks of the new government, and they've they've certainly demonstrated um, a commitment to action. Perhaps we can start with climate. Um, Labor has committed to introducing a climate change bill in the first week of sitting. That's really something. um, That's intended to legislate the nationally determined contribution of 43% emissions reduction by 2030 and net zero by 2050. So that was what Labor took to the election. The Greens and the independents have indicated that they're seeking a stronger target from Labor um, Labor's response to date has been, look, this is a base target, it's not our ambition. So maybe we'll see something more in the bill around and incentivising that ambition. Um, Labor's also indicated it's designed its climate change policies so that while legislation is considered best practice and they will pursue legislation, that's not what's required to achieve the core objectives. The proposed legislative amendments will also introduce assessment and publication of progress against the targets and integration of the targets into the functions of a range of government agencies, and those include ARENA, um, the CEFC, Infrastructure Australia, NAIF, the list goes on. Um, So, yeah, you know, is it smooth sailing? I'm not sure. I want to say yes to that, um, but we can certainly expect more progress than we have in the past.
2: I don't think we've ever seen smooth sailing in the environment space, have we, Mel? No. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, so so we're also seeing um, Labor's determined to respond quickly to the criticisms that have been levelled at um, Australia's carbon credit system, so around the generation of the ACUs. Um, and Labor's expected to imminently announce a review into the system. Um, I expect actually this week as we're almost as we're recording. Um, So we'll be doing an environment blog on that one, so watch out for that. That review is really critical because um, ensuring the integrity of the carbon credit system um, is important, given that carbon offsets and credits are going to be really vital to ensuring that Australia can meet its net zero goals. That this review happens quickly and decisively is also important where we are seeing the prices of ACUs rising and the market is moving pretty quickly to ensure security of supply for the future. Part of the reason that that review of the carbon credits um, has to happen quickly as well is that Labor has also committed to reviewing the safeguard mechanism and that mechanism applies to about 215-ish companies um, that emit more than 100,000 tonnes of scope one greenhouse gas emissions per year. Those proposed changes are designed to gradually reduce emissions from Australia's biggest carbon emitters um, and consultation with industry is intended to kick off in August of this year with the revised scheme to be fully operational by July 2023.
0: Yeah, and there's been a lot of criticism of the safeguard mechanism, you know, setting a cap, not actually driving emissions down. So I think that will be an important part um, of what we see out of the Labor government. Guess another important commitment um, is around uh, transmission infrastructure um, and the $20 billion investment to support a 2030 renewables target of 82% in the main grid, along with investments in green steel and aluminium, uh, community batteries, incentives for electric vehicles and a national battery strategy. Um, we'll also see continued support for the development of onshore processing for critical minerals um, and that's intended to be provided through the National Reconstruction Fund and the value adding in resources fund. Then of course the elephant in the room Catherine, um, the much maligned and long-awaited government response to the review of the EPBC Act um, and and as I mentioned Labor's intention to um, establish a Commonwealth Um, independent environmental regulator through a National Environmental Protection Authority. Um, Susan, Minister Susan Lay, the previous Environment Minister, when discussing that review, said nobody loves the EPBC Act. Look, I feel differently. I know you do too. Um, Absolutely. Can you take take our, our listeners through the implications of the review?
2: Poor EPBC Act. I know you and I love it, Mel. Um, It has been through so much in 20 odd years. It's been through two statutory reviews, multiple Auditor General reports, Productivity Commission reports um, and after all of that and all of the criticism that's been thrown at it, it's um, had very little amendments to, to respond to it all. Um, The EPBC Act is a really critical piece of legislation um, and it's so important that it's functioning properly. So it's designed to protect matters of national environmental significance and they include things like the World Heritage Areas, nationally listed species and ecological communities, migratory species, internationally recognised wetlands and one of my favourites being a Queenslander, the Great Barrier Reef. These matters are all... um, matters to which Australia is a signatory to international agreements. So they're those higher-end, internationally recognised environmental matters. Labor committed to providing a comprehensive response to the SAMUEL review, which was the last statutory review of the EPBC Act, which was carried out in 2020. That review was pretty unkind to the EPBC Act, um, noting that effectively all that has happened over its life is that species have continued to decline. Um, The involvement of First Nations people in decision-making has been inadequate um, and the Act is confusing, cumbersome and inconsistently applied. That review recommended a package of fundamental reforms to the EPBC Act, which was to occur over three stages, um, and the package was to progress as a package. So picking and choosing um, bits of reforms was not encouraged by Samuel. Um, and those reforms included things like national environmental standards for um, consistent decision making, um, decision making that's actually consistent with the objectives of the Act, which seems crazy. Quite um, important that one. Yeah, I think I think it is. Yeah, you know, Section One, um, landscape or regionally based decisions rather than project by project decisions, um, incorporating indigenous knowledge and participation in decision making. Um, actually having reliable data for decision-making and being able to share reliable data to support decision-making, uh, and a comprehensive compliance auditing and reporting regime supported by an environmental, environmental assurance commissioner. So, we don't yet know how is going to respond to this review. Uh, Minister Plibersek has indicated that she will take the time to get it right and while um, there's a lot of merit in that there's also a balance that needs to be achieved between getting some of those quick fixes in place where we know that for example we've got to get a lot of renewable projects up and running pretty quickly um, and we should be making sure that the perfect doesn't stand in the way of good reforms which I think has been a battle for the EPBC Act Mm -hmm. in the past. Uh, Labor has also committed to an independent National Environment Protection Agency, and that will have a compliance and assurance function and um, an environmental data information and analysis division, which reflects that importance of data for decision-making for the EPBC Act.
1: When it comes to um, environmental matters, they obviously go well beyond the focus of the EPBC Act. Mel, Do you expect any any movement in the biodiversity space?
0: I think so. Um, And look, there has to be for a couple of reasons. First, we've got a senior and well-seasoned leader within the environment portfolio um, in Minister Tani Plibersek. It's often been the case, and not always, of course, but um, that the environment portfolio has been given to a relatively junior minister. So I think Labor's choice here um is actually you know strategic and to me it sends quite a strong signal that they are serious about tackling environmental protection because you, you're going to need a strong leader um, to chart the course you know leadership is one thing um, the other thing i think is, is there is a bit of direction already from government um, focused on biodiversity um, in, in particular the Task Force on Nature-Related Financial Disclosures. So the Commonwealth has come out and supported um, the framework and is actually leading consultation with private sector on the framework as we speak. So once that's finalised, I do think it will be an influencing factor around biodiversity policy for government moving forward. But Realistically, in terms of what are the biodiversity priorities, what are we going to see, it is a little early um, to to speak to what those might be um, until the State of the Environment report is released in July and it is going to be critical. Tanya Plibersek has already said it paints a pretty alarming picture of the Australian environment um, and obviously that came through in the Samuels Review in 2020 as well. Um, So I absolutely expect Labor to be drawing priorities for action and reform directly from that report. All eyes should be on the National Press Club on the 19th of July in that regard. To be frank, Tim, biodiversity is tricky. Um, It involves things that are both within and beyond government control. Um, Climate change is is a perfect example of of things that we can't control other than um, in respect of lowering our greenhouse gas emissions. So, to get real progress here, we're going to need more than just the Commonwealth Government um, and we're going to need the states and territories as well to play their role, unless we're going to start from scratch on the regulatory regime. Uh, So, I think a a complementary and cooperative approach is needed to make sure that anything that's done in this space is effective. um, And... Priorities and reform really need to be focused on the things that matter on the ground, not just process and administration. And and I think we have seen a lot of focus on approval processes and decision-making, and and that is right. Um, But we need um, an equal amount of focus on the tangible tangible things that can be done and should be done to see improvement immediately to, to the environment and those key risk issues um, that are known, or that that we will see a light shone on in the state of the environment report next month. So um, it's going to be an active space <laughs> in the next few years. Catherine, do you have any final thoughts?
2: I think I think there's so much that needs to happen so quickly in this space. So we've got interim 2030 targets. Um, That's going to require a lot of infrastructure and a lot of legislative amendment. Um, And in doing all of that, we have to get the balance right between decarbonisation and biodiversity protection. They should be complementary, but they're not necessarily. Um, We've got to get investment happening in the right places and we have to have a really functional plan between the states and the Commonwealth and industry that actually delivers the right infrastructure in the right places quickly and responsibly. Queensland, we, we also have to deliver a carbon neutral Olympics by 2032. So, um, so we've got the sunshine and the Olympics that we have to contend <laughs> with. Um, the states and the private sector really have had to take the lead um, in the last few years in terms of renewable targets and net zero targets and all the consequences around those two important policy drivers. So I think the expectation of... Um, the voting public and the way they voted is that there will be a more harmonious and coordinated approach in terms of um, climate policy and environmental protection between all levels of government. So big expectations.
1: Big ec- expectations, but I think um, good enthusiasm and momentum at the moment too. Well, thanks for joining us, Catherine, and and thanks, Mel, for your thoughts as well. Um, Our future episodes of the Third Will will certainly be picking up along the way how the new government delivers on some of these critical areas of reform for climate and the environment. But also, I should say, in other areas as well, Um, certainly there's been additional commitments which we might pick up in future episodes around modern slavery and um, other aspects related to ESG. We like to close each of our episodes with an interesting fact from the world of ESG, and in honour of our guest's home state, I wanted to share some good news from Queensland, where the state government has committed $24 million for koala population and habitat protection, part of a $40 million package which included recovery plans for other native species. In February, sadly, the koala was deemed to be an endangered species in Queensland, New South Wales and the ACT, meaning it faces a higher risk of becoming extinct, mainly due to habitat loss. Queensland certainly has some strong conservation credentials, and with this new funding injection, it's hoped that the koala will follow in the footsteps of previously threatened bilbies and green turtles. Encouragingly, also announced this month, a significant population of koalas was discovered in Kosciuszko National Park in New South Wales, or as my Polish friends would say, Kuzuszko, and they'd tell me off, where audio recordings have revealed male koalas at 14 sites south of Jindabyne, which researchers say could mean the species is resilient to climate change. As ever, thanks for listening.
2: In the spirit of reconciliation, Herbert Smith Free Hills acknowledges the traditional custodians of country throughout Australia and their connections to land, sea and community. We pay our respect to their elders past and present and extend that respect to all Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander peoples today.
1: You have been listening to a podcast brought to you by Herbert Smith Freehills. For more episodes, please go to our channel on iTunes or SoundCloud and visit our website herbertsmithfreehills.com for more insights relevant
2: to your business.